The Ojibwe people were mainly located in the Great Lakes region of western New York, Wisconsin, Michigan, Minnesota, and southern Quebec and Ontario. Like other indigenous peoples, they found themselves amidst the British and French settlers of the Americas. Over the decades and centuries since that time, they took to speaking the new pervasive languages, and their language found itself becoming less and less common. Now, younger Ojibwe, like so many other indigenous people, are trying to reclaim their heritage. One of those is John Paul Chalikoff. The language as a whole is Ojibwe is one of the safer languages. There's a quote from Stats Canada that was often cited. There are three languages that Canada that have a good chance of continuing on for a number of generations, and that's Cree, Inuktitut, and Ojibwe. He's here to talk about speaking indigenously. I'm Steve Fisher, and this is Life Slices. Okay, let's start with a question that I hope is easy for you to answer. Introduce us, if you will, to John Paul Chalikoff. So my name is John Paul Chalikoff. I am born and raised in northern Ontario in Canada off the northeast shore of Lake Superior. I was born in a small town called Wawa. And then I'm a member of Michipacan First Nation. That's a little Ojibwe community on northeast coast of Lake Superior, about 20 minutes from Wawa. I currently reside in Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario. It's a border town, uh, Sioux, Ontario, Sioux, Michigan, so right at Canada-U.S. border where I teach at Algoma University, where I'm in the Department of Modern Languages, teaching Anishinaabe Studies and Anishinaabe Moen, which is the language, and also teaching at the Partner our Partner Institute, Shingwa Kinomagigamig, which is our Indigenous education institution here. You are busy all over the place. (laughs) It's amazing I got you here today. (laughs) I want to know, to start, what is politically correct these days? Is it politically correct to say Indigenous or Native American or First Nation in Canada? Yeah, so so that's a good question. Whenever I do my my intro to Indigenous studies kind of classes, I'll usually do my first lecture based on all the terminologies, because there are about a dozen terms, and which ones do you use? Uh, so I usually explain, like, uh, uh, Indigenous is used for, like, the larger umbrella. Like, I could kind of connect you to kind of, like, the global scale of Indigenous issues, and, like, uh, that, that's kind of the more global term, that umbrella that connects a lot of us. Then you could kind of narrow it in a bit, right, and be, like, Indigenous peoples of North America and and those kinds of things like Canada has recently shifted. It went from they were using Aboriginal at the government level about a decade ago and officially it's uh, Indigenous. And then we have three groups that fall under Indigenous in Canada. Like so the First Nations, Métis and Inuit. And then on, on the state side, it's there's still uh, I don't think it's as unanimous as to which terms they use. So like I think Indigenous is more like the academic term within like universities and that. And Native American and American Indian are, are still often used at community levels. So there's different there's different comfort levels with like when to use Indian and like who who's saying it and those kinds of things too. So Canada shifted away from using Indian back in the eighties, but uh, some communities in the state and state side are still comfortable using it so so a lot of it comes down to who you're working with and who you're speaking with and i often say like it's a good thing to ask who you're talking to (laughs) because 
<laughs> I use indigenous and then like also specifically like if you know the specific nation that you're working with, those are good to use too, like Anishinaabe or Ojibwe, those kinds of things. Is there an app to keep it straight so you can just kind of <laughs> aim your phone at somebody and know what to call them? Not that I know of, but that, that I think would <laughs> be a helpful one. There you go. Go work on that. That that would because I don't know. I, I get very confused. What does it mean to be Ojibwe Anishinaabe? I guess a lot of it's connected language, land, and culture and territory. Like so, Ojibwe. Yeah, I haven't thought of it that way, but like I guess for me, it 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 connects to your language and your history and your culture and your ties. So one of those one of those things, like specifically like language, like a lot of communities are are struggling with language, and it's kind of often the missing piece of just because like once it once it kind of got cut off from our families, it, it's a very difficult language to acquire as a second language. It's very complex grammatically. I've never seen it myself, but I, I often we're often told in a lot of our language classes that it was in the Guinness Book of World Records twice for being one of the most difficult languages in the world. And Wonderful. One of these days, <laughs> one of these days I want to like actually flip through some of those and find those quotes there. But but I believe it just because of like how it, sometimes there might be assumptions that Indigenous languages are, are easy languages, but they're they're very complex, nuanced. They're they're called like they're referred to a lot of them are referred to as polysynthetic. They're built of like these little morphemes and roots that you kind of connect and make bigger words similar to the way that Latin and Greek kind of work there. The, that's the language for me. A lot of it's like connected to like language, history and culture and connections and your family ties and, and those kinds of things. I guess one way to one way to talk about being Ojibwe and Anishinaabe, but there's all many, many ways to think about that. Yeah. Did you grow up speaking the language or is it something you had to learn later in life? I had to learn it later in life. So my grandmother was the last one raised in a fluent environment. She lost the language. It's a little bit complex. She was raised by her grandmother and her grandmother raised her until her grandmother passed when she, my grandmother was about five years old. And so she was raised those first five years of her life being spoken to in Ojibwe. But after her grandmother's passing, it wasn't really, the language was no longer really spoken to her and she lost her fluency over time. And a lot of, the reason, a lot of uh, historical reasons why family members and community members stopped speaking, hoping their children wouldn't be punished or held back for speaking their languages. But in the late 90s, where my mother kind of got the, the language bug to like really want to learn it and kind of, ser- kind of served as an inspiration for myself there. I was exposed to like, uh, community classes and events where I'd hear it growing up as my mother tried learning. And then I really started trying to get to another level with it when I started university and been learning ever since. And it's one of those things that most people, once you start, I think you, you realize pretty quickly if you're planning to stay in it, it's going to be a lifelong journey of learning there. The, you'll never hit the point where you're like, oh, I've learned it all because that day will, will never come. It's amazing to me how many people of particular origins can't speak their native languages. I mean, right. this is like a common thing. Your webpage says you're an expert in Ashinabi studies, indigenous studies, Ashinabi Ojibwe language, music, puppetry. Where did the music and puppetry come from? I guess I, I still don't like using terms like expert and those kind of things, but sometimes they get thrown at us. Eh? But that one's a, a kind of a fun one. 
the further I was getting into my academics and I, after I graduate, graduated from my undergrad and then I went to teacher's college and then my master's, the, the higher up I was going, the harder I, harder it was I was finding to make time for music. And then once I, I was getting deeper into my academics, I was having a harder time getting into practicing and working on language as well. And before I knew it, like two years went by where I barely picked up the guitar and barely practiced speaking and then it was during my master's where I was taking a holistic and contemplative education course where I essentially had a month to think about like what, what's important to us in education and like what, what's something that's significant to us and that's where I was like I, I want to maintain language i want to maintain music and i want to maintain education in my life and so I, i've tried over the years to weave all those together by writing new and original ojibwe sometimes children's songs but i, I like to think of them more as all ages kind of songs that that they could be enjoyed by little kids or elders alike i try not to make the kind of songs where parents are like oh, i don't want to hear that one again <laughs> <laughs> I yeah yeah, what 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 does Baby Shark sound like in in Ojibwe? <laughs> yeah, that's right. that's where I'm trying to trying to avoid those kinds of little songs. That is there any such category as indigenous rock? Actually, there there is a, a category of like indigenous metal, where in a lot of it, sometimes it's sung in the in their indigenous languages, and sometimes it contains uh, traditional chants woven with the heavy guitars, or some traditional instruments are woven in. So, so the, I know there's definitely a, a genre of metal referred to as like indigenous metal and then they're, they're probably a, i haven't heard like a, a mention for like indigenous rock but like i i definitely lean more towards like rock kind of i throw in uh guitars electric guitars into some of my songs and things like that according to my research there are 574 government recognized indigenous tribes in the u.s and more than 630 in canada how many unrecognized tribes are there and why? What does it take to be a recognized tribe? That's a good question, yeah. So so in Canada, a lot of it, so I'm more familiar with the round where I'm from, around the Great Lakes area. A lot of our communities that are essentially recognized, I guess that, that'd be more the U.S. term. I'm trying to think of what the term they use in Canada is the equivalent. But, but a lot of it goes down to treaty. When we signed the treaties around here, specifically North Shore of Lake Superior and Lake Huron were signed here in Sault Ste. Marie in 1850, referred to as the Robinson-Huron and Robinson-Superior Treaties. And a number of those were signatories, but then there were also communities that weren't able to make it to those treaty signings. So those communities were able to get their recognition later on. I lived in Michigan for a few years, and I, I never got the full sense of how that worked because I know there are state-recognized tribes. So they, they got to a level where the state recognizes them, but they still have to continue advocating and, and supplying documentation to achieve federal recognition, which is kind of the, sta the standard of those 500 nations in the U.S. that if they have federal recognition, they get the rights that are granted to them as federal federally recognized. So, so, so I don't have the to answer those ones, but that was my understanding kind of of, of how it worked on, on the U.S. side. And makes me want to look a little bit deeper into how that works on the Canadian side, too, because I haven't, I haven't thought of that one in a while. Yeah. I live in a, a little town in Washington State that's owned by a tribe. It's pretty much, it's the Jamestown Sklallam tribe, and they okay. seem to own everything here. They're a very wealthy tribe. Why is, is there such a disparity economically 
amongst the different tribes. You have tribes like Jamestown, which is, from my understanding, a very well-to-do tribe. And then you have impoverished tribes where people are barely surviving. That's a good question. Yeah, that, that one. Um, I know there's a lot of internal debate in communities around, like, like uh, especially like with like casinos and, and things like that. They eh, were, yeah, sometimes there are, those are tough questions. Like when you have a community that's doing well and then the neighboring ones impoverished and, and how that can be. And so a lot of it comes down to the sovereignty of each nation deciding how they choose to, to govern themselves. And they have like their sovereign right of how they choose to do so. Some have open casinos and that's been working for them. And then some have found other initiatives and ways of economics. And like in Canada, some communities that are in the oil fields have impact benefit agreements and those kinds of things and then ones closer to mining companies sometimes uh, there's wealth generation that way there's not as many casinos in on the canadian side in ontario there, there's a handful of them and like one of them they have to share the wealth with all like the the profits from the, the casino with all the other first nations communities in ontario while the the other one is able to keep it within their community. So a lot of it, it, it kind of depends on the agreements that were made at the time or and how the sovereign nations decide to govern themselves. A lot of it comes down to individual governance choices and how they choose to govern themselves and that. And, and then nobody chooses to be living in poverty and that. So that, that, that's a, that's the kind of a social issue that we're, everyone's trying to figure out how to and better ourselves and figure those kinds of things out. With all those different tribes, to what degree are the cultures of the different tribes in sync? What are some similarities amongst native, uh, indigenous yeah. tribes? And So I, I just attended a conference in Edmonton, Alberta last weekend called the Algonquian Conference. It was its 50, 55th iteration of the conference. So Algonquian encapsulates like a, a large group of related communities that share like a, a mother language. So I, in my classes, I usually compare that to the Romance languages, right? They descend from Latin, uh, you have your French, Italian, Spanish, Portuguese, Romanian, and they're all connected and, and traced back. Your Germanic languages like German, English, Dutch, the Scandinavian languages, they, they and then those trace back to proto Indo-European, right? A lot of these Algonquian languages, Algonquian is kind of like the the equivalent of Romance or Latin based in Germanic, where languages like Ojibwe, Cree, Shawnee, uh, Mi'kmaq, Blackfoot, they, they all trace back to a, a mother language called Proto-Algonquian, like the, the linguistic name of what they, the theor- is a theoretical language of what they assume the language was they all descended from. So so there's those kinds of relations. And then there's numbers of completely distinct language families. So those are the Algonquian families. There's the Iroquoian, which contains like the Haudenosaunee languages like Mohawk, Oneida, Cayuga, Seneca. Cherokee falls under there as well. There's the Siouan languages like Dakota, Lakota, Nakota, Sinaboyan. And so that's another completely separate family group. The West Coast is super diverse where I think they, they I think they say like almost like almost half of the, the languages are not to don't quote me on that, but a large portion, a large proportion of the distinct languages and language families are along the, the West Coast from California all the way up to 
British Columbia and that a lot of those there a lot of them are smaller languages that are completely distinct from each other which is part of the challenge with a lot of the language preservation is like how different since those languages aren't often related so it makes it trickier to do that but oftentimes they're able to find ways to connect and share like strategies because even though the languages are different the strategies that work will often carry over to other communities so there's national organizations that try to advocate for a countrywide scale which has its challenges as you could under (laughs) because not everywhere has the same views on how to achieve their goals and goals are different, different parts of territories and those kinds of things. So yeah, so so there's there's very distinct differences, but there's also just that are the history of colonization that we've all experienced and like the there's these different things that I don't know, like our ties to the to the land and the history with the we didn't always get along with one another, but we have like a, a tied history and a. For the most part, most communities do try to work with one another and share strategies just from being like similar situations where there's it's better to work together than not to kind of thing. Do you have any sense of how many Ojibwe people are out there and what percentage of them actually speak the language? Like population wise, I would I would estimate there's there's gotta be over a hundred thousand Ojibwe and Ojibwe descendants. And then, and then that gets a little tricky too. Do you, do you only count enrolled or do you count, uh, do you think about it from like a larger scale of including descendants and we'd call the non-status in, in Canada? So I, I'd probably estimate probably a minimum of like two, 250,000 between with both Canada and the U.S. But according to census records in both Canada and the U.S., 2016 census records in Canada showed about 30,000 Ojibwe speakers in Canada. And then U.S. census records only go back to 2010. Hopefully new stats come out soon, but they they listed about 8,000 speakers from the 2010 census records. But some of the language activists on the ground, like in Minnesota and that estimate, is probably closer to 1,000 speakers than than that 8,000 number. So between the two, it's probably roughly around 30,000 speakers. And then everyone will probably define what makes someone a speaker a little bit differently as well, their their level of fluency and that kind of thing. I know that part of your mission, personal mission or professional mission, is to keep the language alive. In what ways are you doing that? What does it take to keep a language alive? My community, Michipacotin, is a it's a small community. We we have a very few speakers left from the region. One of the elders I was hoping to start working with a little bit more just passed away Monday morning. So like the so a lot of it kind of one of those reminders of need to keep working on it while while I have the time to. But language like I, I was talking with someone about this a few days ago where the language as a whole is Ojibwe is one of the safer languages. There's a quote from Stats Canada that was often cited. There are three languages that Canada that have a good chance of continuing on for a number of generations, and that's Cree, Inuktitut, and Ojibwe. So Ojibwe, on, on the whole, is in a much healthier state than a lot of other languages in North America, but dialect or community variation wise there's very little documented or written from Michipacotin and even just north of Lake Superior as a whole very little got documented so very few recordings not very many of the linguists made it through to record words and document I'm trying to just 
gather whatever I can. And I think a lot of it's going to just be like smaller things at this point in time, but a lot, a lot of it's just capturing whatever I can to preserve and share with our communities and neighboring communities, North Lakes, North Shore of Lake Superior area. And and just share with communities and, and just preserve what we can of our, our local variations that we have. Like, and, and like a lot of that kind of comes down to like where people usually come from on how they talk, right? Like the, you could tell if someone's from New York or New Jersey or the Southern states and like based on how they pronounce or the vocabulary they use. So, so that's kind of like what we have in our communities too, like the local variations or local slang or local pronunciations or local vocabulary. And so that, so that's kind of what I'm trying to gather as much of that. And like one of the kind of treasures I got this summer was working with two elders in their eighties in Mitch McCotton. And while we were talking they remembered this song from their youth about this big bearded man that's coming their way with dumplings and those kinds of things. And like, it almost sounds like it was going to a fiddle tune almost. It would have probably been like a kind of modern, probably the early 19, mid 1900s kind of time. Hey, so just kind of really cute to hear that. Would have never heard that had I not. I been... thought you were going to tell us about a Native American <laughs> Santa Claus. <laughs> yeah. That's almost what he sounded like from the way they were singing about him. Yeah. Do your students, your language students, do they happen to be Ojibwe or are you finding that they're coming from all different walks of life? I'd say about half of them are Ojibwe and Anishinaabe students. Some of them are neighboring community, neighboring nations that are in the in the territory or community hoping to learn the local language, respect it that way. Some are non-native or, or not indigenous that are learning to, some are taking it as like electives and then some are hoping to learn the language of the area out of respect and that kind of thing. So, so there's a little bit of different welcome everybody to it because like everyone kind of i think has a role in our local language preservation and re revitalization and those kinds of things so, yeah so i got a got a nice mix of them and and then i try to give tools to the indigenous students that if they if they plan to go back home and work with their elders and speakers or or if they plan to like teach themselves or work with their own children and i, I try to give some tools to help them with whatever their goals are. Some of it coming from my own trial and errors of like what, what I found worked and what hasn't and hopefully learn from what hasn't worked as well for me and maybe they could make it work and all those kinds of things. I try to try to fast track a little bit of some things that took me longer to figure out. Hopefully they, they could figure out a little bit faster. Can you share a little bit of that? If somebody wants to start learning an indigenous language, how would you advise them? I guess there's two two approaches to that one. That's so, so the first one, I guess, that comes to the top of my head when there's when especially with the pandemic, with so much having gone online. I think communities everywhere that we're offering language classes online, we're seeing that they're getting a, a pretty wide scope of people attending those classes, and a lot of them were the Ojibwe centric. We were seeing that we were, we had a lot of Ojibwe and Anishinaabe from across the territories, some of the, the West Coast and some of the East Coast and some even out of country. They would take those classes trying to learn. They had the opportunity. So they, so they would try just because of, like they're, if they're out of, out of the nation territories, like they're then trying to learn it out. So, so sometimes they, a lot of them struggle to figure out how to learn the, the heritage language well outside of our boundaries kind of things. So th these online classes, I think, have been helpful for a lot of our 
community members that have moved away. From the other perspective, I guess, like, I think it's keeping an eye open on what's available in your local communities. Every community is a little bit different. Everyone, like, some are, some are more comfortable with, with sharing and having it open to everyone. And then some are, are a little more protective. I think you just kind of respect whichever community for where they're at. Usually a lot of them could ask, a lot of them will have like contact info and you could ask them what their, who they're servicing is it open to everyone and they'll, they'll usually let you know. And then, so everyone's got their own views, but I've always been of the mind, the more people speaking, I think it helps normalize the language. I think if, if kids were hearing multiple speaking the language, whether they be Ojibwe or non-Ojibwe or just hearing that, it just normalizes it for kids and like, it doesn't feel like. Because I've been hearing more and more like that kids that are, are learning the language, they, they if they meet their peers that are that are only monolingual in English, they don't want to they don't want to be felt singled out or as feeling different in that. Right. I always just think the more that we have speaking, the more that even if you only know a dozen words, but if you share those and like we help normalize our, our languages and our territories, I think like it, it just makes it easier. And I just think it's like a, a healthy relationship building. And like in the, in the past, like this language would have been openly shared or spoken. That's some of where I, I kind of lean towards. Is there any such thing as a website, like a babble for indigenous languages? Mill Lax, Ojibwe in Minnesota, recently spent, developed a Rosetta Stone in Ojibwe. And it's very professional quality. I was super impressed when I seen it, like high-grade videos, videos, top-notch quality, a lot of videos, samples of language being spoken. The lessons are categorized very professionally and it's super well done so like that that's probably been the closest to that has been the Ojibwe Rosetta Stone based developed in Mill Lacks, Minnesota. Can you share your website with people so people can learn more about you and the classes you teach? So I, I guess the I have my personal website jpchelikoff.com where I, I, I could be contacted through that shows a little bit of like my resume of language music and then you mentioned earlier the puppetry as well that's kind of my current endeavor trying to get more of that going and a lot of that is kind of make language more accessible kind of in, kind of inspired by some of like the sesame street model we're putting little videos out where seeing puppets talking in ojibwe and singing making resources more available for families and in the home and classrooms and those kinds of things so some of that will be updated in there and then i I guess just for some of my classes information could probably be found on algomau.ca for what kind of classes we're teaching at the university and those kinds of things in the area we haven't we're not offering a lot of online courses at the moment but but there's often a lot of online courses going on some out of minnesota some out of michigan i think we're kind of seeing a little bit of the the post-covid people to taking a break from online things a little bit there. I think after, I think it'll, we'll see a, a kind of balance out in a bit where like more online offerings will be made available again in that kind of thing too. Is there any question you would like to answer that I haven't asked? I guess just to build off of the puppetry one a little bit there, because the so the puppetry was was kind of born out of the music. They were realizing that a lot of this current generation, they they like visuals when they hear their music, eh? like with YouTube and that kind of thing. And I, I didn't always want to, I didn't want to have to be on camera all the time. So during the pandemic, when Disney Plus put the Muppets on it or watching the Muppets, and then all of a sudden I was like, oh, like, why can't I do 
puppets and those kinds of things so i've been slowly slowly building and learning the skill it's it's a pretty technical and like i I, i'm trying to attain a quality that i'm i'm happy with so a lot of it's helped playing guitar because you're kind of so you're doing two things while talking and that kind of thing so yes you've got you've got to create a puppet guitar (laughs) so then then you can work them both at the same time yeah (laughs) yeah Yeah. so that's the next steps is like having making the songs and then having the puppets singing the songs for the visual medium of it and that kind of thing so just again creating more resources and trying to make it accessible for all ages and that kind of thing terrific but john paul i'm not going to say goodbye because i know there are no words in ojibwe for goodbye so i will say jigawaba min minwa jigawaba min minwa yeah did i i was close Close, yeah. Because I often tell this one in my class. So the in, in English, it could G could be G or J, right? Like giraffe or give. So I was like, in Ojibwe, it's always a G sound. So, so okay. min, yeah. 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 Do you, do you pronounce yeah. when you have double vowels? Do you pronounce both vowels? No. So those those are the long vowels. So like double A is ah, single A is ah. Okay. Double I is e, single I is e. Double O is O or O, depending on area, and single O is O or O. Okay, yeah, I'm going so to I'm gonna have to work on that. <laughs> okay. Well, thanks again for being yeah. here. I really appreciate yeah. it. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you. Miigwech. My thanks to John Paul Chalikoff for sharing his heritage and work with Life Slices. Speaking the native tongue of wherever you're from is a gift. Like many of us who hail from other backgrounds, it's one we should cherish. Don't lose what your family history has given you. Besides, you never know when those long-lost cousins might just show up at your door, and it would help to be able to communicate with them. If for no other reason, to be able to direct them to a hotel. If you liked this program, please like Life Slices on social media and subscribe wherever you find fine podcasts. Life Slices is produced by Beatnik Ravens Productions, all rights reserved. Music courtesy of Fesleyan Studios.